welcome to Beyond the Scars. I'm your host, Olivia. And I'm Gianni Storm. This is a new podcast where we share real people and their stories of perseverance. Remember, scars show toughness, that you've been through it, and you're still standing. Part one of Dr. Kwanda's story started with bringing us to Detroit in the 1970s, where we learned of his childhood. We learned he grew up with a big family and his father left home. Part of the city of Detroit became engulfed in drugs and crime. And at the time, Dr. K, his mother and younger sister, moved to South Central Los Angeles. 15 years old at the time, Dr. K finds himself homeless after a series of events in the rough city of South Central LA left to deal with life completely independent while still supporting his mother and sister. So listen to part two of his story as Dr. K details his experience from high school to adulthood and how he broke barriers and stereotypes as a young black man in America. Everything that mom was leaving, everything she was leaving behind in Detroit, did she find that goodness in South Central LA? getting over her substance use and having fulfilling feeling good mm-hmm. about herself and doing right. good things you know um initially i think initially yeah i think initially there was a reprieve but but anyway that whole realm of, of the crack epidemic no it it, it came and it, and it got worse for my mom it, it got worse over over the over the uh the years um but i remember her talking to me you know, about it. And she would, she would do it in front of me openly to say, Hey, you know what? And she would tell me, you know, she'd have her Bible right there reading scriptures mm-hmm. and crack right there. And she would say, I know this isn't good for me and baby, I'm doing my best to get off of it. And I'm, I'm going to beat this. I'm going to get off of this. And I, and I know how this looks to be reading Bible scriptures and doing this, but each day I'm getting stronger to get move away from it and, and and I'd be right there with her that's that's my mom um I didn't agree with what she was doing but I didn't you know throw her away because you know you know I'm watching the news and they're demifying uh, uh everybody that's that's doing crack or on crack um mm-hmm. so no it, it didn't go away for 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 many years for her it, it got it got worse so worse I'm really touched by the your love your compassion for your mom for your mom yes yeah, I mean, it's my mom, you know, and and I felt, you know, knowing, like I said, knowing her history and what she went through, um, knowing the disappointments and letdowns she's had from relationships, you know, I only came out to, you know, look after her and um, I wasn't about to abandon her. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional, but I wasn't about to abandon her in her time of great need. Uh, your aunt passes away. It's time to relocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you relocate to a friend's house for this just for the summer. How does that work after summer goes? Yeah, so she just like I said, she asks. She tells me someone's coming to, and I'm going to have to to move. And and so I, I, you know, now I'm I'm trying to I'm going wherever I can. You know, some days I'll go to my aunt's where my mother is and and kind of be there for a while, and then I leave. So I'm really like in the streets. You know, I have a lot of girlfriends and. Some, you know, girlfriends I have is just for the convenience of they have a couch I could sleep on or they have a car I could drive. It was and and not and, and I never was like using anyone. I was a very always very open and honest. And I would tell girls, you know, I have a lot of friends. I'm not committed to any of them. You know, um, if you want to kick it, we we can. But I do have a lot of, you know, so they can make a choice. I was like never going to be that person that you know, lied and said, oh, you know, you're my moon and my stars and all that kind of stuff. And knowing I have these other people, it was, it was like a choice. And um, so I was not a dog by any sorts, but I did um, take advantage of the fact that, you know, and and unfortunately, there were a lot of older women, you know, also, you know, that were <laughs> probably I had no business being with, but I was I was very mature, serious guy, you know, I'm this young kid, but my life is serious and, you know, I'm not going to the movies and laughing and going to the mall and chewing bubble gum. I'm, I'm surviving. You know, I have to go to school, to, you know, with gang warfare. And it's like, you know, planning for a military um, operation because you got to know which gangs are fighting which gangs. And somebody got shot yesterday. Don't ride that bus, you know, ride this bus and then get off and walk over here. You know, and so it's like you have to take into account each night, you know, what happened today, what happened in the morning so I can get to school 
and come home. And oftentimes you're at school and there's gang fights outside the, the, the gates waiting for you to, to leave. And, you know, people on the bus trying to fight and everybody's set trip. And it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Everybody's trying to position themselves in, in some kind of way. And um, so that's like the reality of, of just going to school, you know, mm-hmm. just, just, just to go to school, you know, um, and, and go home. Um, and so that, that life became, you know, kind of hectic. You know, I met different people, like I said, where I stayed here and there. I became really, you know, streetwise again to, you know, I was already that way from Detroit, but now I'm in LA and the, the difference is the gangs and territories, but I, I met people who would let me stay here or there. A lot of them were crack houses, people who were, who dealt uh, crack and had, you know, uh, prostitution homes. They, they call it trap house or something like that, maybe, but it, it wasn't like they were keeping girls captive but you know it was a crack house um and I, I I understood where I was in I understood where I wanted to go um and it, it started to become a lot of pressure because I am homeless I don't I don't have money I don't have a place to stay and, and people are offering me the opportunities to escape like you know you're homeless you have nothing there you can you know run this house for me you know, you, you know, and they started introducing me to like the crackheads who would be there. Hey, this is, I don't even know what they call me, T. I think they call me this T. He's going to be in charge when I'm gone. You do what he say. And they would kind of like make girls do things and, you know, to show their dominance. And, and you know, and I, I, I was never comfortable with that because I'm thinking, you know, I, all these women I've grown up with, all these women I respect, um, I wasn't comfortable with it. But at the same time, the sense of somebody recognizing me to be that as a, a in a position of authority or as worthy that that's for a young person you know 15 16 17 that's that's I don't know if the word is tempting but it was empowering in a sense mm-hmm. um and and I could say there was a nice neighborhood I had a place to stay um, so I would stay there sometimes um I had other people you know that where I knew that I knew were big time drug dealers that I could at any time sell crack and and make money because that's how people made money you know I have a girlfriend and eventually a girlfriend a single girlfriend and and the temptation to get her nice things was was there everybody's going to Hollywood and Westwood and you know balling out just and I I don't I don't have that you know um now I I move in with another friend um his mom is one of the old school moms I love her rest in peace Mm -hmm. um she uh had that philosophy everybody's going to church on Sunday and Monday, or you're going to get a job. She told me, you know, you can stay here. I'll feed you. I'll, you know, supply what you need. You can stay here, but you're going to go to church and you're going to work and no bones about it. If you can't deal with that, that's it. Mm-hmm. That was very restrictive for me because I had all this freedom. You know, I kind of went where I wanted to go, whatever. So, but it was a place that was not on the streets. Mm-hmm. And I loved her. I, I love, you know, my friend, we're still friends to this day. Um, and so that's where I, I lived until, um, I don't know, I couldn't, t- I guess I couldn't take the the strictness anymore. Um, I wanted to be able to see my girlfriend. I wanted to be able to do the things I was used to doing. And I, I don't even remember how I transitioned out of that, but I still was now homeless. Um, I had a car now. I had a new job, I think. Um, I worked in a nightclub. I think that may have been it. I think I knew she wasn't going to go for that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm working in a nightclub and at 17. What age was this? Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I was 17 when I got this job. I heard about this club where they don't ID and um, I could go and be a bar back. And, and that's what I did. I think you had to be 25 to get into the club. And <laughs> here I am 17 working there. And um, it was, you know, at that time, good money. It was, I was able to made so much money I didn't from tips I didn't even have to cash my checks you know now I'm starting to stack my checks and I guess I'll cash a check I don't know if I you know if I didn't need to got my first car um, but I'm still homeless I sleep in my car sleep over a friend's house um I started meeting a lot of older women in the club who were intrigued by me and and, and I started being with them and and you know using their cars when I didn't have a car and uh it was just it was just a, like a crazy life I can't say I regret but I don't know if, if I would want someone to have to go through all that uncertainty. Um, but it, it's, 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 it's what it was, but being homeless like that, when I didn't have that job or, or when I, even when I had the job, you know, eventually the club actually closed down, they closed down on a, a Christmas. They gave us a big party, uh, gumbo and all that. And then they never <laughs> opened back up. Oh, so wow. now the rest of my senior year, there is no job. And, and it, it turns into even worse 
or even a worse situation of, of poverty to where, you know, my car breaks down and I'm just out there now. I'm, I'm really out there trying to find where I can sleep and deciding if I'm going to make it through high school or how am I going to get through high school. My thoughts were at that time that I can remember was I need to, I just need a job. I'm thinking still at this time, I want to go back to Detroit. I'm missing Detroit. I'm missing home. I'm like, here I am homeless. I could be in Detroit. Um, my sister's here though, and she's going through it. You know, she's in high school, uh, freshman out, you know, even when I was homeless, I would go with my car and pick her up and, and take her to a bus stop, pick her up from the bus, take her back to my aunt's house. Who kind of, I was always still involved with my family, seeing them. I just didn't stay there. And sometimes I, I did. Some nights I remember I could sleep at her out my aunt's house and I slept under her dining room table. Like I said, there was no place for me to sleep. So wow. I get a blanket and I'd be under her table and, and uh, watching out for her because she's uh, in a wheelchair and she will run you over. So I had to be careful Oops. about that. Um, so I'd be, you know, under her dining room table some nights and I didn't, couldn't do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my thoughts were really just like in that moment. I don't think I had an idea. I thought I would get to college. That was going to be my out, honestly, is it, it was college. I had, you know, written to Tuskegee University as a junior, and it was always my dream school for some reason, I think because of Booker T. Washington knowing his story as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I was going to, to Tuskegee. Um, and they said, well, write back when you're a senior and, and apply whatever. And and uh, I, I uh, applied uh, to Tuskegee. So that was my out plan. I'm going to go to college. Um, my grades were, I got accepted. My grades were not the best. So I didn't get scholarships, but I, I did get accepted. Uh, to Tuskegee. I made sure that I, I attended school, even though I was falling asleep, but I just really would be waking up from work or just this crazy life of, of not having a home. Like I said, sometimes I would be riding on a bus when I didn't have a car just to, you know, have a place to be or go sit in the park or sleep in the park or, you know, wash up in gas stations or any friend's house that I could for that particular day and time. And, and that's, a, that's a lot. Um, so when they said I was a lazy inner city black kid that didn't care, uh, they kind of gave up on me. That that sort of tainted me. And I, I think I didn't start to believe it, but I started to give up because I thought, I, you know what, I don't, I don't care about this. I need to work. I need to work. I need mm. to work. I'm tired of being poor. I need to work. And I was going to drop out of, of school. I was going to drop out. I made up my mind. like, And, and, and some of that, I was disaffected. I had, hadn't said this, but when I went to uh, um California, I was in the first week of my 10th grade year. Um, and when I got to California, they put me in the 11th grade. They asked me what I, what grade I was in. I said, hey, I just finished the first week of 10th grade. They put me in the 11th grade. So I'm thinking, oh, it's different out here. Like I'm, I'm a grade above. I'm going to graduate early. And I go through that whole junior year. I get to my senior year with all the friends I had started to make finally. Um, and I get called to the counselor's office and they tell me, hey, uh, you know, you never did uh completed your sophomore year. I said, yeah, I told them that when I, when I got here, they put me in the 11. They said, no, but you have to complete those credits. Wow. And I thought, what? It says, so you won't be graduating <laughs> this year, right? You're going to have to go back, come back next year what? and, and do all those credits. So all the people I had made friends with and kind of gotten uh, some normalcy, they were moving on to graduate. I had to come back and say, I'm not graduating with you guys, blah, blah, blah. They were upset. I was upset. So I watched all my friends go on and graduate and I have to go back the next year. So my senior year, I really had uh, as mature as I was, I had to go to class with all these sophomores, all these kids. And it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. I was so turned off from school. I think that was a lot of what had me just like saying whatever. I was so turned off because I'm already, you know, this kid that's with this adult mindset and, and now everybody I kind of friends with are gone and I'm going back to I don't know any of these kids I don't even know the seniors who are seniors and so I, I didn't yeah. have like a rah-rah senior my second senior year wasn't so <laughs> you know you know I had um I had been shot at before I had been shot in Detroit that's the whole other story um so I'm just trying to get through the, the day and I remember when I was going to drop out of, of school I started going back to ditching again. I'm, you know, got these sophomore classes. I don't want to be there. Um, I have a couple of teachers who kind of saw me, a couple that would say, you know, you're doing pretty good in this class. You don't even have to come. These kids are terrible. You don't have to have to show up. And I was like, cool. So, but I started ditching, hanging out with, with my girlfriend, just, just to be away from it. Um, and then there was a counselor 
I don't even didn't even know she knew me or of me, but she saw me one day and she kind of pulled me to the side and said, you know, you're about to not graduate. You come this far. What in the hell are you doing? I don't know if she popped inside the head, but if, if she didn't, it felt like it to this day, which is probably what I needed. And I just, but I still, I wasn't motivated. And I was like, okay, I, I get it. And I was sitting somewhere and I remember thinking, I don't care. And then I remember thinking, damn, what about my mother, right? She, she, she needs this. None of my other older brothers and sisters had graduated high school. Um, they had all dropped out in Detroit. And I thought, you know, okay, I'm going to do this for her. Right. This, all this stuff in her life. You know, she came out here. I have to be a now I'm thinking I did my younger sister. I got to, you know, something clicked that I need to be this model for my younger sister. I need to do this for my mother. That's going to be my motivation. Mm. I don't care about it for me, but I'm going to do this for my mother. That's what's mm. going to get me up in the morning. That's what's going to get me to, to school each day. That's what's going to pull me through so that she can say out of all her kids, at least she had one that graduated high school. And, and that's what became the motivation for me to to finish out and and to go forward uh, with it, um, and and so I, I ended up getting it together and, and, and finishing out. I did get accepted to Tuskegee University. Um, I still have my acceptance letter sitting right back there on that shelf between some books <laughs> to this day. Um, I ended up getting accepted. I graduate high school. I remember she was there. My mom came. Yay. My sister came. Um, I was still homeless so so much so that after graduation, my mom went back to where she was staying with my aunt and I uh, was just kind of out there walking with my cap and gown. Uh, my <laughs> girlfriend came actually, and I ended up catching a bus to her house, which was about 45 minutes away driving. So about an hour and a half, I'm cap and gown, catching the bus through downtown LA out to the suburbs to where she lived. Wow. And um, her, her mom had let me uh, stay the night and arranged for my, my girlfriend uh, to cook a graduation dinner for me. So that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, well, I was, I was, but I was still homeless. Um, sleeping in my car that was at my aunt's house because my car broke down, but I'm waiting to go to, to uh, go back a little bit because while I was in Detroit, I had been uh, notified that I had, I knew I had to meet some deadlines for housing at Tuskegee. And I called my mom in LA because I was using my aunt's address where she lived. And I said, mom, they're going to be sending a letter uh, for my housing or whatnot, some deadlines, whatever it was. And I said, I need that letter. They're saying that it's time to get that in. And she's like, I don't, haven't seen a letter. I'm like, can you look, can you look for this letter? So she's looking everywhere. And you know how everybody has a junk drawer, right? Every house has that drawer where it's just, you know, yes. would need a, a, ba- a, a bag tie, a pencil, or, uh, whatever it is, pack of Kool-Aid, whatever. It's all, it can be in the junk drawer, anything. Well, my cousin, some, somebody had gotten the mail and put my letter in that drawer and it had been there for weeks, maybe a month. And, and I didn't know. Obviously, I wasn't there. I didn't stay there. She didn't know, but she found it. And she said, it's right here in the junk drawer. I said, open it, mom, open it. I said, when's the deadline? She, she said, the deadline is today, that very day that she opened it. She didn't have the money. My dad said he didn't have the wow. money. And I really, I really resented my dad at that time, big time, because he had raised two other kids. They went going on to college. He paid for them. And I'm like, man, I went wow. through all this, dad. You know, I went through you know, crack and disappointment oh, and nice. gangs in L.A. And, and homelessness and all this. And I've I, I graduated. You can't get me. I think it was a few hundred dollars. You can't get me to college. And apparently maybe he could. He probably could, obviously couldn't. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But. I wasn't going to be going to Tuskegee. And so now I go back to LA with the idea that I'm going to have to wait another semester. So my idea was to just work until I, you know, can leave in January for the next semester. But um, that's when it got to be a really bad because now I'm, I'm when I go back, I am staying in motels. The first time I'm back, I'm sleeping in a motel. And so I would kind of just hustle at a job here or there and um, to pay for a motel room. I had a sister who started helping me pay for my motel room um, because she had was not working, uh, I didn't have a place to stay. She was with my aunt, um, but she had moved out. She's driving a bus, and so she's like, "Hey, if you kind of watch her kids at the motel, she would pay for my room." And so I did that um, for a while, um, and then uh, that kind of ran out. And 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 again, I had this girlfriend. Like I said, um, there's just a lot of pressure. I don't have money you know, to, to eat really. I'm, I'm eating out of a cooler with uh, salami or bologna sandwiches and cheese. And the cheese is all in the water and getting all soft. And, 
it, it was just that way every day. You know, you're out on the streets. I'm having to protect myself from gangs and all this. And but all these people around me, like I said, are making still lots of money selling crack and going places. They got cars and clothes and jewelry. And I have this girlfriend that that is associated with that that group, not in it, but her some of her family members, are, you know, are within that group and, and they have that access. And I finally broke down and said, OK, you know what? I'm going to sell crack. I'm going I'm to do it. I know the streets. I know the game. I know where to go, how to do it. I had like down to my last little bit of money and I invested it in crack. I'm going to do this. And I knew a house that was set up where my stepdad, who was had been on crack, where he was at all the time. He wasn't with my mom like that now, but I knew where he was and he was there at this crack house. He was like, you can come sell it here. And I, I went there and um, started selling here it's a little bit there. But really quickly, I, I realized I just had this vision like, I was so disappointed in myself. Um, nothing against anybody that that in, has to endure that because I understand it. You got to survive. But for me, I was disgusted. I was disappointed um, because I thought about my family. I thought about my grandmother telling me all those stories. I thought about, you know, all those times in Detroit growing up, all those people, my heroes at Motown, my family, you know, my aunts and cousins who, you know, always had high hopes for me. And, you know, the way I grew up. And in that moment, I kind of just said, what the hell are you doing? And I thought, what if your grandmother, like, I didn't think that I thought, what if I get caught? But it was, and it's in the newspaper, you know, back then going through high school, we went through so much, even before I got here, you know, police brutality and beating us up on the streets. And, you know, we were pulled over every night, you know, on, on the weekends or during the week and they take you out the car and throw you on the curb, hands behind your back. And it was so embarrassing. This is even before I, I went homeless. You know, I'm, I'm still with my aunt, you know, and we weren't doing nothing, just kids playing ball. But they'd be searching the car and, you know, friends and teachers are driving by and, you, and people make up their mind that, you know, um, that uh, you're a bad person. Um, and, you know, they take your car and impound it if they found even a weed seed in your car. It was this time with Daryl Gates as the chief police, a lot of racism. And so I'm thinking, man, if I get caught in that, I'm going to prison because people were, you know, getting a lot of time for just having a little bit of crack or whatever. And I thought, what is my grandmother going to say if she sees that in the newspaper? How is she going to feel? It'd be so such an embarrassment to her. And the newspaper, as I said, is not going to say, you know, here's this kid who had it rough. He's trying his best. He's on his way to Tuskegee and made a mistake. It's going to be that kid in the inner city, typical, you know, just throw him away. And so, I, like I said, I, I took the crack and I just started crumbling it up in the toilet. So I'm not doing this. And literally, like like you see people feeding fish in an aquarium and a fish flutter to the top. That's how people were. They're like, what are you doing? Oh, babe, what, don't do that. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I said, you know, I can't do this, man. It's not me. Not for me. It's not what I'm about. It's not what my family's about. And one guy was like, uh, you know, we're going to do it anyway, so you might as well make the money. Mm. And I said, you know, you're right, you probably will, but it won't be from me. Because these were people that I, I wanted to look up to, professionals in the neighborhood, adults that I thought could be helping me, guide me in a direction that I needed to go in. And, and they're like addicted to this drug. And I was disappointed in all of it. And I walked out and, and that day I, I thought, you know, what am I going to do? I have no place to go. You know, I have no home to go to. I'm, I can't wait until January. I don't, I don't, how can, you know, this is probably, I don't know what month it is, but I couldn't wait till January. I know that much. Mm -hmm. um, and I walked to the military recruiting station on, on Florence and Vermont, which is, uh, was burned down in the riots, which I was there for the riots too, but it was burned down in the riots. I went there and just told the guy, how soon can you get me off these streets? Mm -hmm. Don't tell me any lies about I'm going to be rich and meet a lot of women. Just how soon can you get me off the streets and out of, out of this city? And he said, oh, maybe 10 days. I said, let's do it. Um, and I didn't want to go to the military at all. I was definitely not pro-military. I didn't think about going to fight wars for, you know, corporations that want resources and oil. You know, I was definitely not that guy. Right. But that was like my the only option I saw to get me off the streets. Yeah. Um, I told my sister, and my mother eventually, and that was hard because I knew my mother and sister would be there, but I thought the best way I could help them was to be make money where I could send money. My sister's still going to be there in high school in South central. 
going to, I think I, I went to Crenshaw High School. She went to Washington by the time she got there. Um, and I had, to, I had to go. So 10 days later, I was uh, on an airplane leaving the city for the first time on an airplane. I remember um, sometime just before going, being with my girlfriend, who, who is still my wife, it's my wife today. Um, uh. I remember, yeah, we've been married quite a long time. Um, <laughs> I remember talking with her probably on the same day that I proposed to her and just um, I did let out a lot of a lot of frustration about, you know, my life. I wasn't going to Tuskegee. Now, um, I was frustrated with my dad. I thought he could have helped me. And and it's the first time I think I, I cried in front of someone who wasn't family. And oh. um, I just broke down in tears. I was like tears of anger. I was just angry about so much what the crack had done how my life had transitioned how I'm in this strange place and no understanding I'm 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 homeless then at this time I'm still I'm homeless talking to her and it was just a lot of uh a lot of outlet so she's she's been there for for a lot of it um so yeah I go to the military I'm all the way across the United States in Orlando Florida um and it's it's a different world you know it's the it's probably 99% white people. I hadn't been around <laughs> so many white people ever since middle school. And that's my frame of reference is now I'm back to this frame of reference of white people and, and, and this danger that I feel, you know, but there's a, a one story I want to share about that. I was just after boot camp. Um, I'm with a bunch of guys and we're hanging out. One of the guys asked me if I want to, uh, to go hang out with him off base. Cause I'm on base. You know, if you don't, if you aren't married, you, you live on base, but he's married um, and he invites me out. And so I'm going to go with him to his house to kind of celebrate with with him uh, for this whatever event. And as I'm going out to the car, uh, there's a bunch of other white guys that are in the car. Like there's three in the back and one in the front. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm flashing back to you know, being called all these names. And so I'm kind of apprehensive, but I, I go and we, we end up having a good time. But that one night, there's this one guy who calls me nigger. And I don't remember the conversation that precipitated that, but I remember being very defensive. Like, you know, we're about to fight. Like, you know, I, I was not as patient as I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of other guys were like, why did you call him that? Why, why did you say that to him? And he says that he didn't mean anything by it. He apologizes. He didn't mean anything bad. I'm like, how could you? What What do you mean nothing bad? Yeah, right. <laughs> he goes, no, where I'm from in this town south of Houston, we call all Black people nigger, and they call us cracker. And I was like, what? And he said, that's just how we grew up. And I was like, it was, I still wasn't so sold on the fact. But then something happened where somebody was trying to bother me, some person in town, and the word got out. That same guy was the first one to show up at my door with his shotgun to protect me. <laughs> and so we kind of it kind of changed the dynamic that I had about race and racism and kind of gave an understanding that it is something that's taught. It is something that maybe, you know, that maybe that was just how he grew up. You know, so I've, since then, I've been this proponent of, OK, as long as when you're ignorant of something and you don't know, that's fine. But once you know now you're responsible for your actions. And so mm-hmm. we, we went on to become, um, I could say, you know, friends of, of sorts. Um, but that was that was interesting. Uh, yes. And my time in the military was was exciting. I was in electronics tech and, and did pretty well in, in, in my in my school. There it was like uh, I think I finished 14th out of 300 in my class. Wow. And um, I could have gone anywhere in the world because you pick based upon how you finish up in your in your class. And so there was Rome and Italy and Japan and uh, so all these places around the world. And I'm thinking, man, I can go anywhere, you know, and be paid to do this. And it was exciting. But I remember, you know, my, my mom is still in South Central. My sister is still there in high school. And, um, you know, I got some stories that, you know, things were going bad for my sister. There's bad crowds hanging around. You know, I think she's either a, soft, a junior or a senior. And I'm like, no, nah, man, I, I, I wish I could go to Rome with you, you know, guys were planning, we're going to do this. And then I wish I could go to Hawaii. I got to figure out how I can get back to be close to LA where my mom and sister is. And so San Diego was the closest station to LA. Um, 
And I thought, okay, I'm going to San Diego for the sole purpose of I can be close to them and kind of look out for them. So I passed up all that worldwide travel to stay uh-huh. in the United States to be close to them, went back. Um, and uh, I went to, uh, I remember going to when I, my first day back, I go back I'm at my mom's house. Now she's in South Central. She's still battling with this uh, crack a little bit, a little bit better, but still it's, it's there, obviously. And uh, that same day was the verdict for the Rodney King uh, trials. Oh. And I was at her house when they said not guilty. And um, I was just blown away that all this evidence finally, right? Because we had always known and always talked about how we were treated, right, by police. I had been treated that way. My friends had been treated that way. We experienced that. We talked about it. No one would believe it. Like, this isn't happening to y'all. It was, you know, they would plant drugs on you, beat you, whatever they wanted to do. And even though we have rights, you know, you weren't out there in the streets trying to say, I know my rights, you know, because that they, they was not being respected. But I, I just mm. was so, such a day as I walked out and said, Mom, I gotta, I need to get some air. I went outside um, and immediately people were in the streets with clubs and just like me feeling mesmerized. And it was like instantaneous. People were in the streets, just kind of, you could hear this collective murmur about the dissatisfaction and this collective noise wow. about we're not going for this. And you could, it was like palpable. You could like almost taste it. It was wow. that, that evident. And I, I, um, I got in my car and just started driving and people were everywhere all of a sudden automatically in the streets i mean i saw the riots happening unfolding right in front of me i'm on crenshaw i'm on vermont i'm on florence and normandy i'm I'm everywhere that that you may have seen you know stores are being bashed in you know um things are being set on fire it's 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 kind of crazy people i see people looting and taking things i see you know guys with tiny cars putting refrigerators on top it was some crazy stuff it was (laughs) it was it was a crazy day um, and I say, when I say this, some people are kind of shocked when I say what I'm, what I'm about to say. But for me, it was the most peaceful day I've ever felt in South Central Los Angeles. Wow. It was, a, it was the one time where it didn't matter if you were a crip or a blood or essay. You, it was no like gang boundaries. Everybody was like in this collective one. You could go anywhere and it, amongst all this chaos, you know, and there was damages and, and, and rest in peace and my condolences to anyone that lost life or whatever. But the reality, you know, everybody's entitled to their reality. And then, and that was mine. It, it was it was that type of day. Um, and I, I still have pictures that I that I took. People always ask me, you know, did you did you loot anything? What did you get? I, I didn't get nothing. That, that's not my style. That wasn't that's not who I was. I, you know, I wasn't trying to. I just wasn't me. Nothing against everybody else. I get it. I was homeless. I had nothing. You know, I felt, you know, unjustly done in by the system of things. I I get it. It just wasn't 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 my thing. Um, But but that next day I was supposed to report to my ship in San Diego um, or a couple of days after at least. And I remember calling them and telling them, hey, I don't uh, think I'm going to be able to make it because by this time I have my daughter who's at this time she's one. Um, I have my wife and now the they're putting in curfews. They had started shutting off gas to people's homes, electricity um, on purpose for whatever reason. Curfews is dangerous. You don't know who's doing what. And so although it's peaceful for me as a man in the streets, it's not safe for my wife and my daughter and my mother, anybody right. to leave in that realm um, because it's so unpredictable. And as the nights go on, it got worse. And so I told them and, and you know, we didn't have the internet back then and it was not like the minute by minute news uh, crawlers. So they hadn't even known a riot had started. I said, no, man, it is. Turn on the TV. They were like, you need to get down here. I said, I'm, I'm not leaving my wife and daughter in this situation. Um, eventually they were like, well, you know, come down. We'll give you a few extra days to, to come. And when I, when I got to my ship, you know, they were kind of like, where were you? Drug tests. <laughs> I said, what do you mean drug tests? So apparently when you are late, you get a drug test. So I'm like, okay. So I, I Pass this drug test, whatever. So now I'm at my ship, newly, um, new family, um, my wife and my daughter. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to find a place for them to stay so I can be on the ship. Um, they'd already give me some flack about being late, but that was over. So now I, the deal is, you know, I go to work every day on the ship. And, you know, when you're on the ship in the military, it's just a, a job. You go to work, you go home. If your ship is not deployed, you're on the ship for work and you go home. 
So I was doing that each day. I'll go to work, but they were letting me go to find an apartment. So every day I would show up to go find an apartment. Um, my wife was kind of picky as she could be. It's fine. She didn't want to just live anywhere. She wanted yeah. a nice place. So, which mm-hmm. she should. So we didn't find one so fast. So after a few days, the uh, officer, my division officer said, hey, give him maximum duty. I have been coming in every day, Ma. Remember, I'm coming mm-hmm. in every day, signing in, and then I'll leave. Now he says, well, give him maximum uh, liberty, I should say. Give him maximum liberty to go find a place and, you know, come back. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I was gone about three days. I came back and they said, where you been? I thought I was finding a place. They said, well, you were supposed to come in every day and sign in and then go. And I said, what? I said, I said, I was already doing that. He said, give me maximum liberty to do that. How? I was already coming in. So isn't that different? No, you're supposed to come in. I got written up for being AWOL, um, drug tests. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I'm, at this time, this is the only ship in the military that were, that females were on um, is a submarine tender. And one of the sisters on the ship, she says to me, you know, anytime a black guy comes on this ship, they always find some way to try to get rid of them. It's a very right. racist ship. And I said, what are you talking about? I had, I had, known racism throughout the time in the military, but I I'd had a great time, great experience. And uh, so um, sure enough, she was, she was right. Uh, oh. So when I, when I, when this happened, I got written up and uh, I had to go to what's called captain's mass. And that's where it's like a court. It's a court proceeding in the military. So I go to captain's mass and I say, oh, this is, uh, he's going to understand. This is so simple. It's like logical. I'm not worried. I go to captain's mass and they say, well, you're being charged with being AWOL. You were not here. And I explained how I was coming, going in and out to find an apartment, maximum liberty. I came back. He goes, well, I have a notice for you. I said, well, he said, he says, you have a fraudulent enlistment anyway. I said, what? Fraudulent? What, what is fraudulent about my enlistment? He says, you had a traffic ticket <laughs> back in 1987 <laughs> and you never paid for it. And you're supposed to pay for that ticket. And that makes your enlistment fraudulent. So that same jaywalking ticket. What? So, yeah. So he says, you have two choices. You can go to CC and what CC is, it's like a corrective boot camp for like people who are derelicts and in trouble. And by this time I had already made rank. I was an E4, but what I knew that, they didn't tell me, but I knew if you go to CC, they strip you of all your ranks. You go mm-hmm. to the bottom, bottom and start over. Right. And in my rating as an electronics tech, I would no longer be working on the submarine equipment and repairing things. I'd just be nobody, really a shop person sweeping the floors. I wouldn't work on anything and I definitely wouldn't be able to advance in my rank. And so I knew that and I thought, I'm not I'm not doing that like. I didn't come in here to be a custodian, nothing wrong with custodians, because later on, I I am one, which is how I end up going to college anyway. But um, so I said, well, sir, and all this stress, I had just finished all this homelessness. It was stress from the military. You know, they were stressing me a lot about things. I said, with all this stress and I was missing my wife and daughter, I said, sir. um, So he says, you can go to CC or you can get out the military. I said, sir, with all respect, with all the stress, I I just rather get out. I wasn't going to start over. He looked me right in my eye and says, good we don't want your kind around here anyway. And I thought, what? No. What? And I'm like, wow. And and further, you know, a further thing with that is the, you know, I had a legal officer that was advising me of my rights and what to do, what to say. When I go into captain's mass, that same guy is sitting next to the captain as a part of the panel with the captain. So I'm telling all, you know, yeah, it was, it was crazy wow. how that happened. Wow. So he says, we don't want your kind around here anyway. 45 days restriction, 45 days extra duty, meaning I can't leave the ship. My wife and daughter are waiting for me. I can't leave the ship for 45 days. So basically I'm under arrest on the ship, 45 days, and I have to do extra duty. So that was that. And, and during this time, you know, more trouble comes. I'm, I'm there doing my extra duty every day after regular work. I go and we have to chip paint. So now I'm in the bottom of the ship inside the bottom chipping paint or whatever. I do that. I had a I had a back injury that I got playing basketball in the military. So it kept me from having to do certain duty. So this one day, you know, after duty, everyone goes to do their exercises. Well, I don't do the exercises because I have this injury. And so Instead, I go back to my birthing area, to my rack, and I'm talking on the phone to my wife. And a guy comes in, uh, one of the police officers, they call him a master at arms. 
he comes in and says, what are you doing sitting on your rack on the, in your uniform on the phone? I said, I, I don't exercise. I have this off-duty chit or light-duty chit. Well, you're not supposed to be in your rack in your uniform. And I thought, what? So for all you out there, I don't know if this is still the case. Don't have your uniform on and sit on your rack or your bed. Don't do that. Wow. I, 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 I had never been on a ship. I never heard of that. Didn't know that. He says, I'm writing you up for whatever. Go to the office. So I go to the office for being written up for being on my, my bed in my uniform. That's what I'm written up for. And I'm going <laughs> back to captain's mass for that, to court. And I thought, okay, this, you know, even though he told me all this, I don't, I don't know why I'm so believing in this goodness of this captain that he's going to see that this is a ser- silly situation after what I just experienced. But in my mind and my belief in humanity, I'm thinking this is going to be nothing. I, I didn't know. So I go in there and say, I, I wasn't aware that it was a rule not to sit on your rack in your uniform. I didn't know, sir. Oh, okay. Now I'm going to the brig. My, my punishment was actual military jail now, not just a ship. So now I'm three days in the brig, bread and water. Three days, what? bread and water in the brig. Yep. So they chained me up, handcuffs on my ankles and my arms and walked me off, escorted me off the ship and put me in a, a police van and took me to a military jail for three days, bread and water. And mm. I'm thinking, wow, it messing up my, my, my name, my record. And uh, so, yeah, I was there for three days in, 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 there, in here eating bread. And, and, and I chose wheat bread, though. I thought, you know, at least I'm going to mm-hmm. give you a choice, white or wheat, you know. But it was humiliating because they strip you down naked in this room. and Everybody's watching their hosing you down and you got to bend over and all this stuff and, you know, shave you bare and all this stuff. And uh, but I chose wheat. And the first night I'm thinking, oh, that's OK, I'll eat some bread and OK, I'm done for now. And they say, well, you have to give it back. So you got to give them back the loaf. You don't get to keep it. They come and collect what? it. So now I'm starving all night and I'm in there starving. I'm like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I could just have water. The next day, though, I, I kind of snuck some bread and like I was flattening it down and smash it to hide it. So I'm in there at night like a damn field mouse, you know, eating on bread in the dark, you know, so I can anyway. Wow. It was crazy. So I ended up getting out of the military after that. And uh, was just bewildered. Um, I leave. I'm going home. Finally, get to see my wife. I'm 21. I'm with my wife and daughter. Uh, actually, my my wife, my daughter, I think, was at home. So I'm going back home to where she's now. Our apartment is. Um, and um, I decide that you know, we decide we're going to stop and get a drink because it was a hot day. We go to a, a bowling alley, play a game of pool, and have a drink. I don't have any pockets i just have on some shorts and so i say hey hold my keys i'm gonna go get us a drink i come back with the drinks and i say okay where are my keys and she kind of hesitated she's like um and i felt my heart like something's wrong i go out and my car is gone and i just got out of the military everything i own was in my car oh my god every piece of clothing item i had money in there like radar equipment everything i own except the pair of shorts and the tank top um and that was another thing they hated about me in the military i had a very nice car as a, a cadillac a 1984 eldorado two-tone blue and white on boobs mm. with gold kit and it was i got it from my father-in-law i got a loan and got it but they swore i was a drug dealer that was a thing. Why you? How you got this car? You this age? You dealing drugs? And they gave me so much flack about that everywhere I was. But anyway, so the car is gone. Somebody just you know press a button. It's an alarm. It's a gold Cadillac key. So I'm out of the military. Got to have a new life, a new job, and have no clothes. What am I gonna do? Um, I never blame my wife. She, you know, she was so upset. Not you know, it's not your fault. Eventually, we get the car back, but, you know, they had ripped the seats up and bashed in the computer and obviously stole everything out of it. It didn't run the same. My God. I felt so violated even driving that car. But uh, but some reason I was sitting I was sitting on a at home watching public television, watching the school board meeting. I don't know why I was doing that. Like, who's 21 watches the school board? <laughs> meeting? I don't know what, why. But I saw a former teacher. Um, he was now a board member. He was my speech and debate teacher. We had got along pretty well. And I thought, man, maybe he can help me get a job because I don't have a way to get a job. Right. Um, and so I call him up and say, hey, um, I'm so and so and I'm looking for a job. He says, I remember you. He said, you were a real serious kid in high school. 
Mm-hmm. He had no idea of my situation, homelessness and all this, but he knew I was serious. He's like, you were different. You were serious. He goes, go downtown and talk to this particular person. Tell him I sent you. And I go and I didn't even interview. She said, oh, Jeff sent you. His name is Jeff. Shout out to him. Um, and I was hired to be an instructional aide for LA Unified School District. And my job was to tutor students. Um, but the teacher would always leave. So I ended up being like the teacher. I'm at this mental health center and I I loved it. I was like, it was so freeing to to like helping people. It was my element and I would have done it for free. Um, And it was, it was part-time. It didn't really pay that. It paid good, but it was only a few hours a week and I needed more for my family. Eventually I had to tell them, I said, you know, I got to find another job. You can't get more hours. Do I have to resign? They said, no, you, you just do what you do. You, we're not going to let you go. So technically, I, I still may be employed by LA Unified. I may have some <laughs> benefits there. I was never fired, never quit. I got to check that out. <laughs> not officially. Um, yeah. But I, did, I didn't become a teacher even still then. I, I you know, I was working. I, I um, didn't even think about college. I had my daughter, my wife, and so I'm, I'm doing whatever I can to make ends meet. You know, I, I made incense and sold incense and um, I sold T-shirts. I sold anything I could find, you know, uh, hustling in the streets. Um, no drug sales, nothing like that. Though I was, you know, um, pizza delivery driver, security guard, bouncer, whatever kind of jobs I could do um, to make ends meet. And ends weren't meeting, but I'm I'm working. You know, traveling multiple hours on a bus just to get to a job to be able to work because you know there weren't connections. I'm doing whatever I have to, and uh, then I have my my son, and I'm still working. And and finally, um, I ended up, you know, I was a tow truck driver and I owned a body shop and. Um, it was okay. And then I, I moved to a, a certain area that was kind of far away and wasn't able to maintain that body shop. My, my first business, it was a great business, but it, it suffered. Um, and I found a job as a custodian at a school district and um, we had benefits. I didn't care that it was a custodian, you know, taking care of my family. It's honest living, you know, and I say I didn't care because some people look down on that as, as if, you know, it's a job. Um, but during that time, I decided I'm going to go back to school. Finally, I'm going to get back to school. I'm going to take some classes in the morning. You know, I need to be in school. I'm, I'm about 30 years old now. So this is a, you know, fast forward. I'm 30 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm going to school. I'm, I get called into the office. Um, I got written up. And I didn't know why. The principal calls me in. And he says, um, we got a report that you were reading last night. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, written up the, the, for reading. Yeah, the face you made is close to my face. I'm waiting for him to say I was reading and what? I I, I forgot to enter the trash. I was reading and I, you know, dropped the book. I was the reading rest and, of it. right? Uh, yeah, and, but that was it. And I said, and so with all the silence and awkwardness, I, I said, well, I said, but I was on my break. And I'm thinking, he goes, yeah, well, still, we just rather you not do that around here. His exact words. And I thought, what kind of slavery, you know, yeah. 18, what, what is what is this, really? I'm good enough to clean up shit and clean toilets, but you don't want me to read and better myself. So, you know, here we go with, with racism again. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, this, this same guy had, uh, had, had tried to have me uh, um, arrested on campus. I remember a police officer came to my house one day and said, Hey, you got a ticket. I had another ticket for something. You got a ticket. I didn't have money to pay for this ticket, not the jaywalking, a different ticket. <laughs> I hadn't paid it yet. He says, um, he comes to my house. I thought this was weird. He says, um, you got a ticket. You should just, just make sure you go down and take care of it. Not a big deal. Just go take care of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was weird. That was nice. Never had that type of interaction with police. It's always been something negative, mm-hmm. but the very next day I get called into the office and there are police in the, in the office with the principal and they are talking about this ticket and they want to arrest me. My, yeah. My, the idea was if they could, take me out of there in handcuffs it would be an embarrassment they would have justification to fire me I, I suppose that's what the, the thing is but my wife was there that particular day picking up my daughter after school like she always does and she let him have it she was just fed up and she was like how can you do this 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 is a good man and you want to arrest him and embarrass him for this and, and she was she was just she, mm. rightfully so she had she was right on point yeah the point where they were like okay no they said no worries just follow us down to the police station We'll fingerprint you, let you go. So we're following them down. And then I come back to work that night and everybody at work was in shock because when I left, they thought I was arrested and it's going to be a bad thing. 
I'm back at work. Yep. So it's nothing they could do. But anyway, so this racist stuff kept going on. So finally, one day, so the principal did something, and I had had it. I don't know what was in me, but I, I thought I was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably said I was. And I was just like, I'm done. Like, I, I'm thinking that if I get rid of this guy, it's going to be a good thing for humanity. Like, I'm going to do all <laughs> these kids that are going through a favor and anybody that has to come through this situation. And thankfully, I called my supervisor and told him what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause he talked me off the ledge. I was really heated. He talked me off the ledge. It's like, no, don't, don't kill the principal. Yeah. And I don't know if that was what I said. I don't know if I should <laughs> even say that I said that, but I was done. You were fed up. I was fed up. And, and so I, I, that day I, I told my wife, I, I said, I'm going to quit this job. I said, I got to quit. I, I, you know, it's benefits. And I set my kids down. I said, you know, I'm going to go back to school full time. Now I said, I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to go to school full time. I said, it's going to be rough. It's not going to be a lot of money. I'm going to end up getting on welfare because I can't, you know, make enough money to go to school full time to focus on what I need to do. I said, I'm going to go back and get my associate's degree. I'm going to get my bachelor's degree. I'm going to get my master's degree to teach a credential. And I said, well, it's going to be rough. I said, but it'll pay off. I said, maybe, maybe you guys will end up being in my class one day. I'm going to go back and be a teacher. And so I went straight through. No breaks. The associate's degree, bachelor's, all, yada, yada, yada. And uh, ended up being a teacher. And um, the best part of that story is both my younger kids were ended up being my students. Oh. My students. Yeah, I had them for first. I, I At first, I taught everything, English, Spanish, biology. I had them for all those. I even gave my daughter an F one time because she wasn't doing her work. I, and I would I would send her home and say, go home and talk to your parent yeah. about this. Um, it was a, it was an academic. Well, I wasn't a final grade, but I'm like, I have to be fair. Like, you can't yeah, be you getting do. over. Yeah, so. I say go home, have this signed by your parent <laughs> type of deal. But no, Aww. they got to see that that come to fruition um, for for that to happen. But it was rough. It was it wasn't easy. You know, it was, right. it was rough having to study and focus and and to be excellent. And all that I had been through, and the fact that I was older and I'm this black man, I I need to do more. I need to make sure that when you know I'm ready to apply, that my resume my CV is impeccable. So I, I did a lot. You know, I was the president of this club and that club and a leader of this and graduate of honors. And, and you know, um, and when it came time to to transition, I, I could have gone to Stanford and Harvard was there and all these other schools were there. Um, but again, I had a family. And so I, I chose the best school I could find that was reputable enough that would, you know, be able to you know, secure a good, a good job, whether it was teaching or, or not. Um, and, and so that's how I ended up becoming a, a teacher, um, which I still am today. I don't know if marriage is ever easy for young people. You know, we got married at 19 and, you know, we had children young and you no, know, it, it was stable in terms of we were together. But it was always a, a struggle in terms of finances because these jobs I had, you know, they weren't paying a, a lot. You know, it was like barely paying. I, mean, I probably was on welfare throughout that time at the same time. So it was just trying to make it like trying to be responsible and and, you know, not be, you know, a typical, as you say, cliche black man or or whatever it may be. You know, I have a family. I want to, you know, raise my kids and take and, care of them. You know, yeah. And at the same time, I'm I'm trying to raise myself and grow. You know, I'm only 19, 20, 21. Wow. And I'm, you know, trying to do all I can, whether it's <clears> a lack of role models or not. So the stability was, you know, I mean, I like to think of it as stability. We're still together. You were trying. You know, yeah. trying to try to make it happen. We're trying to figure out, you know, where we exist in, in this world, you know. And there, there were times when folks didn't understand, like, you know, I would get the the talk, you know, you're too old to go back to school. You need to be working. You're not making no money. You know, your family is struggling because it was a struggle while I went through school, you know. And, and I didn't go straight through for my doctorate. It was a few years after that I did. But um, yeah, my family was the motivation, even at times if they didn't think they were or maybe they didn't they couldn't understand, you know, why we are struggling. They were, you know, and by all means, they were um, after I got my master's degree and I'm teaching, you know, I ended up teaching in, in a place that is notorious for racist practices. Uh, uh, I don't know why I keep being visited by racism, but you know, mm-hmm. they had never had a black teacher there before. Um um, a lot of history in the, in the place was reminiscent of what I went through in Detroit and as a kid with the racism. And so it made me feel like, you know, I was born to be in that place because I lived through it and I understood how to transition through it and hopefully help other people to be able to transition through it as well. And, and there's and it's still occurrences of it here. Um, 
I, I went back and got my doctorate because I had always, you know, fourth grade teacher told me I should go to law school. And so I got the doctorate because I was I was cool with where I was, but the respect and, and what I knew I was capable of doing, I was not receiving the the respect that I thought I should for what I was trying to do. So I, I had it in mind that, you know, I need to go, I need to go further. Three years after my master's, I decided to go back and I was again going to go to law school. Um, but I found this program, this doctoral program for uh, in, uh, educational leadership for social justice that had a, enough elements of law in it and educational law in it that it attracted me. So I decided to go back for that um, just to be able to um, make some waves and some opportunities in, in for other people, really, to be able to help other people and to, and to really try to transcend anybody who didn't understand that purpose or any barriers that folks are trying to to put in that way you know so education has been a way for me to run and escape poverty I think they I kind of spoke about that to some classmates working on my doctorate you know as far as why I was still going and I, I kind of thought and said damn I, I think I'm running from poverty mm-hmm. I think I'm, that's what it, it was like a run from poverty and and a way to to try to secure you know a better life for my family um mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and, and after that, you know, there's, there's a lot that we could talk about later, but I, I do want to get to, you know, what, what happened since then, and, you know, so since that time, it's, it's been about giving back to others, you know, and in 2020, I, I started a program for uh, graduates when COVID hit, they weren't going to be graduating. And, and so I was going to just give my students a quick freestyle rap to, you know, make them feel better. But I realized it's a whole world out there of graduates. So, um, People, I started this website, Instagram2020.net, where I, I did a freestyle for them, and we had TikTok challenges. Um, I gave away gift cards and, and money and T-shirts to people all over the world, um, seven scholarships um, to different students in the United States and around the world, and and all of that came out of my pocket. I didn't I didn't get the, uh, and a couple of, of people, uh, California Teachers Association helped me out at the end as well. Mm-hmm. Um but it was just to help them, just to give them some some hope during COVID. Um, and because of that, I ended up um, being offered a, a television channel, um, which is um, one I operate today. It's called On Watch TV. And, you know, I had it for a year before I launched it. And the idea for me with that is giving people an opportunity to have their productions put on television. Maybe they've never had that opportunity. They don't want to go through the red tape of Hollywood. Maybe mm-hmm. people feel they aren't worthy or valuable, but for me, it's like no. Let, let's 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 put you on. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of people with their first films, and, and there's a variety of content that people can see. But it's really about again opportunities to to help people. Um, I'd always wanted to do a uh, a nonprofit as a way, especially you know I was with Instagram 2020 as a way to give back, and so I recently started a nonprofit called Score which is uh, stands for Securing Communities of Racial Equity. And it's all about education and programs to alleviate the effects of racism in communities, um, whether it's training teachers or politicians or providing classes for students. Um, wow. the, the most recent thing that I'm doing is a scholarship for students who are struggling like I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this scholarship is different <laughs> in that you have to have a 1.5 GPA or lower to, to get it, to qualify, but it's really about giving students an opportunity to feel and understand that they're valued. It's an opportunity for teachers and administrators to understand that they shouldn't give up on students that are struggling. Um, they may end up becoming a doctor themselves or whatever, but so I think all of my life experiences have led to me into the service oriented person that I am today to give back because I, I've been through so much and I know that there are a lot of people that do. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that I was resilient enough to be able to get through it, but I know so many people that weren't that resilient. Mm-hmm. So anytime that I can be of assistance to folks to just, you know, be a bridge where there was no bridge or to understand where there was no understanding, mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of what my life represents for me now. So again, whether if it's the nonprofit score or on watch TV or, or any other ventures that I'm involved in, it's really about helping other people. And um, that's what, what drives me. Let's chew gum. Oh my God. Let's chew the gum. My podcast. <laughs> how could I forget? You know, I've, on season four, I think we just did the 56th episode wow. and the podcast was an extension of that. It was really a way for me to be able to say what I want to say, right. It's, it's, it's an opportunity to talk to people and connect. Um, 
And, and that's what it is. You know, chewing the gum for me is about, you know, chewing the fat. It's a conversation. Yeah. And so on that podcast, it, that's, that's what it's about. Communication, you know, stories and, and opportunities. And so I'm really um, excited about all those. Let's Chew the Gum, the podcast, uh, the right. SCORE, the nonprofit, which we're just getting started. Um, like I said, we have the scholarship, but also there's a program to provide books and learning materials for a community of, community of children in Papua New Guinea. I'm hoping to get more donations for that. Um, and then the, the channel. So they all keep me pretty busy, but they all serve the same purpose, which is really an opportunity and, and giving back. We thank you for sharing your story. Uh, we wanted to ask if you have any final thoughts or any advice for kids that are experiencing what you have experienced with homelessness and, and all of the adversity that you've gone through. Yeah, sure. You know, what I would say is, is I would I would tell people to don't identify yourself with your circumstances. Circumstances are things that are around you, but you yourself are not the circumstance. You know, when, when we struggle, my wife and I, my family would struggle. You know, I would always remind her and she would remind me that, you know, this is just a situation. You know, it's, it's not the reality. You know, problems come and they go. Um, so, you know, try to be resilient, understand, you know, as long as you're breathing, there's an opportunity, you know, each day presents a new opportunity. It, it may be hard and it gets hella hard sometimes to just continue to sometimes be bombarded, you know, with racism or, or, or just whatever it may be. Difficult times, poverty. But, you know, some of those things tend to come back and, and you don't know at the time, but they're like that's your that's your your story that'll be your testimony like i'm i'm using mm. it today to tell my story to say hey you know i'm this way because of right um those are like your evidence every every time you succeed you know that's evidence that you can and so when it gets hard again i tell my students to you know look back at what you've been through and think of times when it was rough and you thought it wouldn't you know get better and it did or you thought you wouldn't make it through and you did that's your evidence that you can do it. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy and you and you are going to want to go through it, but you can. And so use that evidence to continue to get up. You know, one of my mentors, uh, uh, Bob Sutton, Pappy Joe Sutton, they called him. He was a boxer, famous, uh, fought all the famous boxers in the 50s, like Archie Moore and whatnot. He was contemporaries with them. Mm-hmm. When I was just started at, at community college, you know, he I was in his uh AYAC uh, program as a parent uh, organizer, community organizer. And he would always say, Ty, he called me Ty. He would say, don't ever take the 10. And then boxing, that means don't let you, don't get knocked out. He said, you can take the eight, but don't take the 10. You know, life's going to hit you and you'll be staggered. You get the eight count, make sure you're okay. Don't take the 10. So I would tell people, you know, find it within yourself, find yourself worthy, know that you are worthy. And, and there's some one out there there's somebody out there that can benefit from your experiences that can benefit from your stories and so that's why I freely and openly tell my story in in such a real way uh so that people will know right these things just don't happen you can do it see stay this so so my podcast let's chew the gum um that you can download that anywhere that fine podcasts are downloadable. It's on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean, uh, Spotify, Anchor. You can search Let's Chew the Gum and you'll find it. Um, I, I even upload them to the YouTube channels for Let's Chew the Gum. Um, so they're there. I'm always tell folks, if you want to be a guest on the show, you know, email me at letschewthegum at gmail.com or if you have show topic ideas. Um, so that's the podcast. Um, on Watch TV, is viewable on Roku and Amazon Fire TV. So if you have Roku, you can just download the app on Roku. If you have Amazon Fire TV, however you get your apps, because it's different for each each type of application or each uh, format, whether it's a phone or computer, but still it's the same, all watch TV. So you'll download the app and save it to your Fire TV um, there. Um, You can also go to the website for On Watch TV. It's On Watch TV dot uh, net and if you go to to the website you'll see um, you won't you aren't able to see the content there yet but you'll see snippets you'll see or uh, hear interviews uh, with some of the content creators on the channel and sort of get an idea about the channel there and then score the nonprofit 
I'm still building the website, but it's up, should be up and running right now. It's score501c3.org. Um, you can email me uh, for any information at info at score501c3.org or even score501c3 at gmail.com um, for information on that. The scholarship, we're still looking for donations for the scholarship to support that. We hope that we can replicate and duplicate this scholarship opportunity for folks all across the country. Because again, there's a lot of valuable students. Um, I had an interview with a guest the other day on my podcast, and, and she talked about our greatest leaders and, and greatest people are those that have gone through struggles. And those include those struggling students. You have something valuable to offer to people. And when I say struggling students, I don't care if it's high school or college, wherever it is, mm-hmm. you all have something valuable to offer. Um, and I, I'm here to help you develop it if you if you need help or, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, so that's where you can can reach me at any time. Um, by the way, is your um, mom and dad still alive? They are. My, my mom is still alive. And, and, I, and I, I didn't say in the story, you can put it in there. I'm happy to say that my mom has been drug free for over for decades now. Um, she she Yay. kicked that habit in the butt. Um, yeah, she she was done with it. Um, she is living. My dad is living. We have a great relationship. I talked with my dad all the time. You know, we really um, kind of as, as I grew up, we got a chance to kind of really reconcile. And, and I finally was able to voice those emotions that I couldn't, you know, I just had so much respect. I didn't want to put anyone in a place where it made them feel less than because I had so much respect for them. Um, but I talked to my dad probably more than my mom now. Yay! Thank you that's 